Worksheet number 15, the system of sacrifices. The system of sacrifices. Now, last evening we began what it would, tonight we will conclude is a, a, a picture, an overview, a summary, if you will, of the sanctuary. And last night we looked at the Old Testament sanctuary and we found out that it's simply a reflection of a true sanctuary, which is where? In heaven, okay? So what you saw, not only the the encampment, the entire encampment, of course, was a reflection of heaven, and in particular, the sanctuary was a picture of God's dwelling place, his throne room, his, if you want to say, operation center for the universe. The reflection of it is on earth, but it teaches us the truth about what is in heaven. Now, more than just a structure where the Lord lived and dwelled and had his uh, dwelling amongst his people, the sanctuary was an active, living organism, if you will. It was a thing that always had activity going on. And tonight we're going to look at what were those activities going on in the sanctuary, primarily two that we want to look at specifically, and what implication do they have for us, what application do they have for us and our walk with Christ. So last night we just laid out the structure and the foundation of what the encampment of Israel looked like, the sanctuary itself looked like, with its three rooms and courtyard, holy place, most holy place, the pieces of furniture, and all the logistics stuff. And basically, we wanted to lay that foundation last night and show that that physical structure was a reflection of a true tabernacle, which is in heaven. Tonight, what we're going to do is explore what was the purpose of that structure and what was it designed to teach us. Okay, So it was a teaching structure. It was supposed to let us in on something God wants to know, some wisdom that he has. So tonight we're going to look at worksheet number 15, the system of sacrifices. But before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to thank you again for for another day of life and another opportunity to be here together this evening. And Lord, I would ask that you would help us to understand this truth in particular and see the application for our lives today. Help us to understand that all the types and shadows of this sanctuary are a living reality in heaven if they point forward and even now to a Jesus who's living to intercede for us as our high priest in heaven. Help us understand what that means. And through your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to apply it in our hearts. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin tonight all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, which I believe is page 2, In your pew Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 6. When everything was great, when there was no sin marring the world, when everyone was in harmony with God's law, God articulates this particular warning. It says here, by the way, there is no way that that is a correct... (laughs) 16 and 17. I was like, those are fine texts, but it's not where we need to go. If you want to make a little notation in your notes there, it's 16 and 17. Thank you. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall what? Notice it doesn't just say you will probably die or you might run the risk of death. It says you will surely die. It's definite will absolutely die. No equivocation. No, I wonder what he means by that. I wonder if he's serious. No, no. You eat it, you will die. No questions asked. Okay? 
Now, of course, we turn the page, Genesis chapter 3, and you see the exact opposite declaration made by God's enemy. Verse 4 of Genesis chapter 3. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Almost word for word what God had said. Only one little change, three letters, N-O-T, not. Which, of course, undermines everything that went before it, right? God had said, you will surely die. Satan says, no, no, you will not surely die. And he explains explains why. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And of course, in death, your eyes are closed, right? We talked about that, how you don't see anything, you don't hear anything, you don't know anything. So basically, God said, you're going to die. And of course, death is an undoing of creation. You're going to go back to the dust and you will think nothing, hear nothing, see nothing, you'll be done. Satan's argument is not only will you not die, but your eyes will be open. He didn't just say you'll remain neutral and just keep living. It'll actually be an improvement on your current state. Okay? Very exact opposite of what God said. Again, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And it's important to understand how he meant like God knowing good and evil, as though you don't know the difference between good and evil, but you'll be able to know it for yourself. Up until this point, God has told you what you can do and what you can't do, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what evil, but you will know for yourself if you eat of this. You never know till you try it. You've heard that you can't knock it till you tried it. Right? He's just trying to keep you from something. So basically, they had two arguments. One, which was the very, very unmistakable, unequivocal word of the Lord, you shall surely die. Satan comes along, you shall not surely die, but in fact, you'll get even better. This is the real tree of life, right? It's a tree of better life, improvement. So they had two choices. Very clearly, they had two choices, and we know from history, we know from Bible record, the choice that they made. So let me ask you, did they surely die? Yeah, sure. That day? be fun. I just sit down and let you all sort it out amongst yourself. <laughs> Did they die or not, right? No. Take a look at the text. Of course they didn't die that day. And the Lord had said very clearly, you shall surely die. In the very day you eat, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what happened? For, for, chapter 5, just to clear up the contention we just had, <laughs> Genesis chapter 5. Did they die that day? Well, let's see. Chapter 5, we'll just start with verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Well, apparently he lived long enough to have kids, which they didn't have at that point, right? In the day God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived. Well, right there. (laughs) That's a problem, right? But how long? Until he ate the fruit, and then he died. Is that what it says? No. He lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. And he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. Well, 930 years is a pretty lenient death sentence, right? Especially when the declaration was, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Now, I've heard people explain, well, what really happened there is, you know, as Peter tells us in the New Testament, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and he died within that first thousand years, so he died within a God day. Well, okay, I'm not, I'm not totally knocking that one, but it seems to violate the immediate context, right? It seems that the Lord had said, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. But here it is, 900 years later, they're not dead. So what happened? Well, I think we get the reference to what happened, the inference at least in Genesis chapter 3. Back that up. What happened on the same day that they ate of that fruit? Now the Lord makes mention here, we'll go to verse 17. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, now that's not to say you should never ever listen to your wives, okay? But notice what he's saying, because you listened to your wife instead of me, right? Because the serpent talked to her, but who talked to him? She did, right? Very clearly. And it was to Adam that the instruction was given in the first place. In the day you eat it, you'll surely die. And she comes along with, hey, I got good news. No, you won't. And Adam had a choice to make. Do I go by what God says or what she says? Verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in the toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And having heard that in the day you you surely die, you would expect that he would return to dust that very day. But now watch what happens. Verse 21 comes along. One little passage, but I think it has a great significance here. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of what material? Skins and did what with them? Clothed them. Now, they already had clothing. They had made their own clothing. When they found out they were naked and vulnerable and guilty before a pure and holy God, they were were afraid and they hid amongst the trees of the garden and they sewed, as the Bible says, fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They had covered their own guilt, right? And the Lord looks at that and says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You can't cover yourself. You can't get yourself out of this. And so the Lord makes for them tunics of skin or clothes of skin and clothes them. Now, if it said that he had made clothes, maybe say, of wool. You know, the sheep doesn't have to die to give wool. But tunics of skin, you don't remove that surgically, you know. That takes a sacrifice. Friends, something did die that day. And it clothed their guilty nakedness, right? Their shameful nakedness, as the Bible would say. Something died, but it wasn't them. Something died in their place. Thus, it makes sense that later on, and by the way, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, it mentions Jesus Christ as the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. We're going to get into this. But it seems to indicate 
that the command was something die, that you're going to die, but something stands in its stead and something dies and instead clothes them on that very day. By the way, this is why it makes sense in Genesis chapter 4, starting verse 3. The children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the first children, the two sons, and it records what they were doing starting with verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So one brought a grain sacrifice, which is not particularly a sacrifice. It's not a living being. It's just a, it's a fruit and herb of the ground. But here, the other one brought an animal sacrifice, something gave of its life. Okay. Verse 4 again, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected which of those two offerings? Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Apparently, what the Lord in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, when he made tunics of skin, that animal sacrifice in the place of human death, was carried over and was implemented as a thing that the Lord expected now. Okay? This was a service that you do. Cain tried to come up with an alternative way, going back to, you know, figuratively fig leaves or grain sacrifices, and the Lord did not respect that. He said, no, that's not what I asked for. You might like it. It might be pleasing to you. It may not be as distasteful as having to kill an animal. But that doesn't teach the lesson. This is what I've asked for, an animal sacrifice. And thus we see the system of sacrifice instituted all the way back in Eden. And of course, as I made reference to ahead of time here, all of the sacrifices, starting right there in Genesis 3.21 and onward, point forward to the great, I'm going to use this term now, anti-typical sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All those other ones, because do lambs actually, or rams, or bulls, or goats, do they take away sin? Do they actually, are they your real substitute? No. They're a symbol, they're a, they're, they're a representation, but they're not the real thing, right? They point forward to a real thing. Of course, the real thing, the type was in the Old Testament, but the anti-type was Jesus Christ when he died on a cross, right? He is that sacrificial lamb. Genesis 22 makes this clear. Or at least you see pointing to it very clearly, I believe. Genesis chapter 22 It's a fascinating chapter here. To give you a little context, Genesis 22, that's going to be page 18 in your pew Bible. Abraham is called to be the father of the faithful, the father of what would later be known as the Israelites or the Jewish people. Of course, he's long before the one even called Israel comes along, Jacob, his grandson. But here's Abraham, and he finally has his first child of promise, Isaac. And Isaac is grown old enough to be, you know, on his, not on his own, but he's a strong young man. He can help out his father. And, he, and the Lord gives a very bizarre request to Abraham. Genesis chapter 22. Let's start with verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. So what is God doing with Abraham? Testing him. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Verse 2. Then he said, take now your son, 
your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So the Lord specifically asked him, take this one son, the one son of promise, your only son, and make an offering of him. Sacrifice him to me. The Bible makes it clear. He's testing Abraham. Will you do this? If you go back in the annals of his history, uh, Abraham has not always been the most faithful, even though he's the father of the faithful. There are some discrepancies in his record of faith, and the Lord says, I need to test you. Take this son of promise, go up on the mountain, I'm going to show you, but I need you to offer him as a sacrifice. So, we'll skip down to verse 6. Getting further into the story, it says, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. By the way, you'll, hopefully you'll see some very clear parallels between the sacrifice of Isaac and the sacrifice of Jesus. Right? He's his only son. And he lays upon him the wood of the sacrifice. And he makes him walk up the hill to this place. Again, verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went on together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And I can't tell you the significance of verse 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. God will provide the offering from his own resources. He will give of himself for this. Again, strong allusion to Jesus Christ. But we'll keep going now. We'll just continue with verse 9, just to keep the continuity. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son on uh, a son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. It's interesting. The first time he calls me, he's like, Abraham. Yes. But this time it's Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> so he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In verse 13, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Right? So his son is literally being commanded to die. It was the command of the Lord that his son should die. But instead of killing his son, the Lord himself provides a substitute, a, 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 a lamb, a ram caught in the thicket. And that is, notice the language is very clear, that the lamb, the ram, dies instead of his son. His son was the one slated for death, but the ram comes in and takes the sacrificial blow. Is that clear from the story? Okay. This is a very, very important thing. Thus, it makes sense then when we go to Isaiah chapter 53. And notice, of course, where did the lamb come from? According to, according to Abraham, 
the Lord himself would provide the lamb. It would be the Lord's lamb. It was come from him. Isaiah 53. Let's go to page 710 in your pew Bible. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, of course, this is a messianic prophecy pointing forward to the coming Jesus, has laid on him the what? The iniquity of us all. Notice, Jesus has no iniquity of his own. He's a clean slate. By the way, which is a great reason I can't be a sacrifice for you and you can't be a sacrifice for me. Because then somebody had to be a sacrifice to that person, right? There's, you need a clean slate. And Jesus comes and has every trial and temptation we face, but was without sin. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Okay? So here, the Bible says, Isaiah 53, all we, like sheep, have done what? We've gone astray. How many, by the way, have gone astray? All. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So you see a transference of guilt or iniquity or record of sin is gone from us to him. Exactly what, I, uh, what Abraham was supposed to act out there in Genesis chapter 22. That though the son was slated to die, a sacrifice comes in and dies in its place. Okay? I want you to build this very clearly in your mind as we go into the sacrificial system and see how it plays out in the sanctuary. John chapter 1 in the New Testament. John chapter 1, this is going to be page 1025 in your pew Bible. John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, his entire ministry, by the way, lasted roughly six months. Didn't write a single book of the Bible, didn't heal anyone, didn't do anything really particularly great except for start a revival by preaching the word, calling people to repentance, and pointing to Jesus Christ as the anointed one, the Messiah, in their midst. And how does he do? How does he make that announcement? John verse one, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, and what does he call him? The Lamb of God. The lamb that God would provide for the sacrifice of humanity was standing right in front of him. And he said, behold, the lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. The purpose of the lamb was to take away the sin of the world, to be a canvas upon which that iniquity could be transferred from the sinner to the sinless. And he could be our sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 1 gives, by the way, the significance to this. First Peter, here he's calling out in page 1162, people not to take for granted the, the import of this truth. That we weren't bought back with money. That we weren't bought back with anything except for the very life of God himself and the Son, Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, in verse 18. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed. And of course, redeemed is like a coupon. You turn it in, you get something back, right? You, t- you cash it in. You were not bought back. You were not redeemed with what kind of things? Corruptible or perishable things. Like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of whom? Christ. As of a what? Lamb without blemish 
and without spot. And notice verse 20. Indeed, he was foreordained when? Before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for whom? For you. When was he set apart for this plan? Before the foundation of the world. Apparently, before the world even began, there was a concept that if man should fall to the enemy, Satan, that there was a plan in place. That as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior ready to go. Why didn't Adam die in that very day? Because there was already a plan to give him a time of probation and let Jesus come and take the iniquity and give us an opportunity for a second chance, for eternal life. Okay? This is a powerful truth of Scripture that comes, runs from Genesis to Revelation, that Jesus Christ is that lamb that all of those Old Testament sacrifices prefigured or was a type of, a shadow of the Jesus sacrifice to come. So now we get to the sanctuary. Let's turn over our page, and we're going to look at two main services that took place in that ancient Israelite sanctuary, or what would later be the temple in the promised land, okay? The sanctuary system of sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1, page 93 in your pew Bible. Third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 1, right there at the very beginning, outlines, and of course the book of Leviticus is all about the tribe of Levi, and these priestly duties, these sanctuary services that go on. And the very first thing it tells us, the primary function, the primary structure here, is this offering to the Lord. And we'll just start with right there with verse 1, the very first words of the book of Leviticus. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting. So has the Lord taken possession of his house now? Yes, he's inside and he's calling out. Spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. Okay, it needs to be continuing that whole living sacrifice. It has to be a sacrificial animal. Okay, now it goes on, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without what? And of course, Peter already said, like a lamb without blemish, right? All of these are typifying Jesus Christ. It says, let him bring a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will. Isn't that a powerful thought that you, you, God's not even going to force you to repent? You do it of your own free will. You can literally let Jesus go and have nothing to do with him. He's not going to force you. But you do it of your own free will. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then, verse 4, he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and this is very important language here, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Okay? It will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Continues in verse 5. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's son, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, so I want to get this picture very clear in your minds. Anyone who had this sin issue and they wanted to get right with the Lord, they wanted forgiveness, they, need, they knew they have iniquity that needed to be transferred away from them or they will die in their guilt. 
they bring this animal sacrifice, and they don't just bring it by and tell the priest, I sinned, here you go. No, 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 no. First of all, notice they need to bring it of their own free will. It's their own choice, their own animal. They, bring, they don't just have a supply of animals. They don't just call out, hey, 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 go kill one for me. I'm good, thank you. And you stay at home. You don't send a message with a friend. You have to, it's personal, right? You bring it to, to the place yourself, to the tabernacle. And then when you get there, you don't just say, have a conversation with the priest and then leave him to do his work. No, no, no. The priest is there officiating this, but you're still personally involved. And what does the Bible say? What's you're supposed to do? You're supposed to lay your what? Hands where? On the head of the animal. So apparently before the sacrifice is made, you lay your hands that the animal might be accepted in your behalf. Isaiah 53 talks about, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is happening when they lay the hands on that animal? Transfer of guilt transfer of iniquity. The record of the wrong goes instead of the, the, the guilty party goes to the sinless party. The sacrifice. Very important. And it has to be done personally. Can't have somebody else do it for you. You come to the sacrifice on your own. And then you would think, okay, now I've transferred my guilt, my record, my sin, my iniquity to this sacrifice. Now I'm good. One more thing you have to do. Notice it says in verse 5. What is it you're supposed to do? He shall what? Kill the bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood. So, so far, the priest has just been there officiating, kind of moderating, watching this thing, but they haven't gotten their hands in. So far, the hands-on part has been by the sinner himself, transferring the, the guilt and then killing the animal and the priest's job then comes in to collect the blood and then transfer that blood into the inner part of the sanctuary, to the altar. The altar, and of course, the one that's out in the courtyard is the altar of sacrifice. So he goes into the altar of incense and presents the blood before the Lord. Okay? Now, the sinner does not go into the holy place. Only the priests go in there. And there's a veil between the courtyard and the holy place. So you can't, by the way, see in there. You just trust that this priest you can't see anymore who disappears from your sight goes and does a work on your behalf. Does that make sense? Right. So, for instance, if you came and just dropped off the lamb, would your sins be forgiven? No. You need to go through the repentance and confession on the head of the animal, and then the animal has to die in your stead. Right? Because the wages of sin is death. And the day you commit it, you shall surely die. That was what the Lord said. And that same typification goes forward. Typology, if you will. Now, once the death occurs, if the blood just poured out on the ground, that would not be effectual either, right? It has to be presented before the Lord. But the problem is we can't go before the Lord. So there's a priesthood who represents also, by the way, this, the animal is representative of Jesus. The priest just happens to be a representative of Jesus, a type of Jesus Christ. And of course, the courtyard and the camp represents this earth. The camp is where Jesus, because you remember, Jesus didn't just show up at 33 years old out of the blue, dum -da -dum, I'm here, right? He was born as a human being, grew up in Nazareth. In fact, his, one of his first disciples questioned that. Like, he can't possibly be a Savior because does anything good come out of Nazareth, right? He was raised, just like the lamb, he was raised in the camp. 
And at the right time, he came into the courtyard of sacrifice. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then when it finally came, he said, now the hour has come. There was a time for this. And Jesus shows up and fulfills every step of this process. And of course, the sacrifice is a representation of Jesus himself. We've seen that very clearly from Scripture. But also the priest is a representative of Jesus, and he goes where we cannot go, which is into heaven itself, because the sanctuary was a reflection of what is in heaven. So Jesus takes the blood. The priest in 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 the system here, in the sanctuary, would take the blood into the holy place, present it before. Now, they don't even go into the most holy place. We'll get to that in a minute. But even the priest, his realm is the holy place. So you can see there's a three-tiered system of access to God. Okay? The sinner, the repentant sinner, can join the priest and the sacrifice, all can be there together in the courtyard. Now, the repentant sinner leaves trusting that the priest will continue his work on his behalf in the sanctuary, which represents heaven. Of course, the animal dies, of course. So now the sinner goes away, the animal is dead, and the courtyard is empty, and the priest goes into what represents heaven. You know, it's interesting. People like to go to the Holy Land and look at all the different sites where Jesus was, where Jesus was, and Jesus was. And that, I would have to imagine, would be fascinating. But they have that one thing in common. Those are all places Jesus was. But friends, there's a place where Jesus is right now. And the whole thing is outlined in this sanctuary system. Okay? So, the blood is taken in, and of course, it is sprinkled on the altar. And there's what's known as this transfer of sin. Now, let me point this out. Let's go back to our worksheet now. Why is the blood so important? Let's go to the right to Leviticus 17. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Why is the blood so important? Notice what he says here. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the what? Right? So he says, that I'm going to designate that as the representation of all life of that lamb. Right? It's not in the ear. It's not in the skin. It's not in the tooth. It's in the blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. Right? For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So the blood is that special thing that God has designated as the representation of life. And it gets transferred, now stained with a record of sin that is not inherently its own, but it happens to be the carrier of your guilt, of my guilt, right? Now, the sinner leaves forgiven. Happy day, woohoo! It's off of me. But has the sin been destroyed? No. It hasn't been destroyed. It's merely been transferred. See the difference? This is important. Let's go back to our worksheet now. Before sacrificing the animal, the sinner laid his hands on its head. By confession, that's laying on of hands, the sinner's guilt or iniquity or sin, however you want to say it, was transferred. This is an important concept. The sinner's Guilt or sin was transferred to this sacrifice. The sinner left forgiven, but the sin was not destroyed. It remained 
Where? In the sanctuary. Blood was sprinkled on. So you left clean, but what got dirty? God's house. You go back to your home, guilt-free, Scott clean, brand new, clean slate, new leaf, however you want to call it. But God's house has just been defiled by your iniquity, by your unrighteousness. Which necessitates then the second main service of the sanctuary. Now that first service happened every single day, morning and night, that happened every day of the year. Even on the day that we're going to talk about now, that one special day of the year, the daily went on just like it's called, daily. There's a reason it's called the daily service. It happened every single day. But there is a once a year service that, surprise, surprise, only happened once a year. And it's for the express purpose of dealing with what got accumulated in the daily. Okay, so you have the daily, and then once a year, you have to clean out what has been accumulated in the daily sacrificial process. Leviticus chapter 16. You're already in 17, so just turn back one page. This special day in the Hebrew economy is called the Day of Atonement. Okay? The Day of Atonement. And remember, the blood makes atonement. It will make atonement, make atonement, make atonement. But apparently that atonement has a particular day when it will be finalized, when it will be completely done. It's called the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16. And this entire chapter outlines what's supposed to happen on that particular day, that particular service. Now, the first several verses talk about how this time, not just the priest, but the high priest is involved. There's only one of those in Israel at a time, the high priest, representing, of course, Jesus Christ. Every step of the way, every step of the sanctuary points forward to Jesus. I don't want to give away the whole farm, but the whole thing is pointing forward to Jesus. High priest and all. And, of course, there's a daily sacrifice for the high priest to ceremonially, spiritually cleanse him for the work he's going to do that day. Now, we'll start with verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Okay, so he takes care of him personally before he cares for the camp collectively. Okay, so personally, there's that sacrifice. Then, verse 7, he shall take the two goats... So he's supposed to bring these two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So after he does his own daily sacrifice, now he has these two goats, and he goes and presents them before the Lord. And they're not dead. They're living. Then, verse 8, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. And you find out, if you go back earlier, find that these two goats were basically identical. They're both out blemish. They were raised in the camp. They're everything great. So one could be one, one could be the other. They're interchangeable at this point. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for whom? The Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. So you have two goats on this day, the Lord's goat and the scapegoat. Well, let's see what happens. And Aaron shall bring, verse 9, the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. So what happens to the one designated as the Lord's goat? It gets offered as a sin offering like you've done with all the daily ones, right? It's just another one of those. But, verse 10, the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented how? Alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it. 
and to let it go as a scapegoat in the wilderness. Now, every other offering that's ever been offered never gets to go. But on one day, this one animal gets to go in and then go out. That's extraordinarily interesting. It is unique. Now, why is it? What does it mean? So, let's just continue. Let's go down to verse... uh, Let's go down to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So this is the one time in the year where someone goes into the most holy place to the very presence of God and sprinkles this blood directly on the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for what? Now, read this carefully. What does it say? He shall make atonement for what? This is verse 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. Now, let me ask you a question. What has the holy place done wrong? It's a holy place, right? It, of course, hasn't done anything wrong, but it has been defiled by an accumulated record of sins and transgressions that the children of Israel have committed, and they get to go clean, but the Lord's place gets dirty. Right? Notice this now. And it explains that very clearly. Verse 16, but he sh- So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of whom? Children of Israel. So what makes the holy place unclean? The children of Israel. Right? And because of their transgressions, for, notice this, for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Fascinating. Let's skip down to verse 20. And, and this is, I cannot stress the importance of this enough. And when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place, so notice, I want you to please underline this, bold this, highlight this, put an arrow to it and a star around it, circle it, whatever you have to do. The atonement was finished before the scapegoat is even brought into the picture. Okay? All the atonement rests on the sacrificial goat, which is the Lord's goat. And it says here in verse 20, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So now we're transitioning now. Whatever was t- the atonement that was taken care of there is all done, it's all ended, and now we bring forward the live goat. So what's he going to do with the live goat? Verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Now that sounds exactly what you do when an individual has sins that he wants to transfer, right? Puts it on the sacrifice. Now the sins, instead of going into the sanctuary, are coming out of the sanctuary. He lays his hand, Aaron being the high priest, the representative of all the people for all the sins they've committed all year long. Again, verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins. You see that three-letter word, all, 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 all. Anything that had been in the sanctuary is now being put on this scapegoat. 
The Lord's goat, by the way, is dead at this point, long dead. And he's the one that made atonement. But this now is something different. All the transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So the goat comes into the picture alive, gets presented before the Lord. The lot goes to the other goat who dies as a sin offering. And as a result, the atonement is made not just for an individual, but for the whole camp, for all the sins, for all year. And then all of the accumulated guilt after the atonement process is finished, they bring forward the live goat. And Aaron, the high priest, lays his hands on the head of this scapegoat. And you would expect, like you've done with every other thing, that it would then shed its blood and die. But this animal does not shed its blood. It just receives on itself all of that guilt, all of that iniquity, and then it's taken out to the wilderness. Now, of course, the domesticated goats, what's going to happen to it in the wilderness? It's going to die, right? But let's be clear where it dies and how it dies. It does not die in the court It does not die as a part of the sacrificial process. It does not shed its blood. It just simply has all that accumulated guilt put on it and then released. Go to the wilderness. Die on your own. It's not part of the sacrificial system. This is patently important. Verse 30. What are the people supposed to do during this day? This is the special day when all the accumulated sins are taken out and what's the people, what are the people supposed to be doing in the camp while the work is going on in the tent? Verse 30. Well, it was just for, verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall, what? Afflict your souls. So while the work is going on inside the tabernacle, inside your own tent at home, you're supposed to be spiritually connected with what's going on by afflicting your own souls. Now watch this now. Afflict your own souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. This is for everybody, the whole encampment. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, had the sins been forgiven before? Yes. Had they been transferred off of you? Yes. But now the entire record of the whole camp collectively is going to be cleansed and you've already put your sins there. The last thing you want to do is go do more sin and pick it up and be the one defiled during that time. No, no, no. You afflict your soul. Your job is to make sure everything is in there that can be in there. That's why there's a daily service that morning too. Even on the Day of Atonement, if there's anything you can think of, Bring it to the Lord, put it on this, and let's be done with it for good. Watch this now. Again, verse 30. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. There it is again. It's a statute forever. There's this concept of afflicting your soul. So while the, while the work is going on, and of course this represents the work in heaven that Jesus is doing for us, We can't see him. Remember, as the apostles watched Jesus ascend into heaven, they were straining their eyes. They can't see past the veil of this earth. They can't see into heaven. 
But we know by faith that Jesus is in that holy place and now most holy place of that heavenly sanctuary doing a work of cleansing of sin. And the responsibility on the outside, back in the camp here on earth, is to by faith work accordingly in cleansing out the soul. While he's cleaning out the record, we're supposed to be looking for anything else that can be scrubbed out of our lives too. Lord, I want to be done. I want to be clean. Completely top to bottom, head to toe. Now, this is known as the Day of Atonement or the Day of Judgment. And why is that? Why would you afflict your souls? If your stuff is already taken care of, why do we even have the second one? Well, here's why. Judgment, this is going to be an important key because we're going to be looking at there's a Day of Judgment. All of this, again, typifies some phase of Christ's ministry. He literally was raised in the camp. He literally was a sacrifice in the court of the earth. He literally is transitioned into heaven, and I believe this most holy place ministry has a literal fulfillment, and I believe we're in it right now. Okay? But the question is, what is it? What does it mean that he's doing that work that's outlined here in Leviticus 16? Judgment demonstrates... Boy, if I had a highlighter, I'd highlight that one, underline it, bold, star... Judgment demonstrates that you have accepted all that Christ offers, both pardon and power. Now, we talked about that on night number four, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is more than just wiping your slate clean on paper. He actually wants you to make you clean in person, right? He offers you both pardon for the past and power for the future. If this person comes along and says, oh, I'm so sorry about this sin, there you go, and then goes right back out and does it again, well, that's a problem, right? Because that's not, that's a one-sided coin that you're trying to spend in the vending machine of the Lord. It doesn't make any sense. He says, no, 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 I'm offering you not just forgiveness of your record, but I'm going to give you power for victory. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to demonstrate that my grace is sufficient for you. That you can be victorious. My blood is more than just pardon. It also gives you power. Judgment demonstrates that you've accepted all that Christ offers, both pardon and power. Now, watch this now. I want to illustrate it as we close. By keeping a record of all sins, because it seems like, well, why wouldn't, once my sin is brought and forgiven, why wouldn't it just be destroyed right there? Why do you need this extra room? Why don't you have the place where the sacrifice is made, and then you bring it for the Lord, and he just kind of wipes it down and erases it or lets it fall on the ground or something, just kind of deletes it and eliminates it right then and there. Why have that extra step? Why collect it all year long and then clean it? What's the purpose of all this? Why not just take it on a case-by-case basis and destroy it each time? Well, here's why. By keeping a record of all sins, justice, it's in your fill-in-the-blank there, justice can finally be meted out to Satan. Justice can finally be meted out or given to Satan. Let me illustrate it with this analogy, with this story. The story is told of an immoral professor. The story is told of an immoral professor who worked at a college. And a young lady had great ambitions of being a, uh, a, a doctor. She wanted to be something. She wanted to be something. She wanted to be challenged. She took every hard class she could. She believed she could do it. So she signed up for all these difficult classes, one of which the professor taught. And it did not take long for her to realize that she was in over her head. 
She was, she'd taken the load too hard. Classes were too tough. She was just slipping and falling behind, and it was just starting to pile up on her, and she was starting to panic. She saw her grades dropping, and she realized, I'm not going to make it. I need some help. I need some special, I need something. So she goes to the teacher, the professor, and she explains the situation. I can't withdraw now if I drop the classes of financial penalty, but I'm too far in, and I can't quit. I'm stuck. I'm just, I'm, I'm drowning here. I need help. And the professor sees not only a young woman in need, but he also sees an immoral opportunity for himself. He says, I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you what you need in exchange for what I want. We don't have to tell anybody about it, just you and me in the back room here. But I promise your grades will get better. It's up to you. What do you want to do? She was floored. She couldn't believe it. She went back and looked at her grades, and she saw them, how much money was on the line for this, and she thought, you know what? I don't have any other option. And so she makes the deal. She followed through with her into the deal, and he followed through with hers. Grades started going up. That D became a C, became a B, and all of a sudden she was doing fine, academically at least. But in her conscience... Things were not going so well. And she knew that she did not earn this grade in a reputable manner. In fact, she realized she sold herself out far too short. And this was just, she couldn't believe the person she'd allowed herself to become because of the situation. She felt awful and she was racked with guilt and everything else. And she said, I can't, I can't do this. She came to the point, I'd rather fail honestly than win this way. So she goes to the academic dean of the school. She says, I need to confess that I have cheated in the most horrific way. I didn't just look off somebody's test. I didn't just get the notes from somebody. Most flagrant academic dishonesty you can possibly do. I sold myself for my grades. And she came clean. She confessed to the whole thing. The academic dean said, oh my goodness. (laughs) We need to have a meeting. So they had to the council, the president's council get together. What should we do with this girl? Do we kick her out? How do we deal with this situation? What do we do in a disciplined situation here? And she was waiting outside, and they go for hours and hours, and they finally come up with a situation, a solution. They call her back in. They said, here's what we're proposing. From now on, you're on academic probation meaning you better not do it again. She's like, no problem. (laughs) I'll never do that again. Good. But you're going to be on academic probation. We're going to check in with you. We want to see your grades. We want to to see, you know, you need to check in with your sponsor and stuff like this, your mentor, your your guidance counselor, someone to demonstrate that you're actually doing it the right way, even if it's worse grades. We need to see your effort. You're going to be on academic probation. If we see you mess up, you're out. But we're going to give you an opportunity now. She's like, don't worry, the act itself was so distasteful. I have no temptation. I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I have nothing to do with it anymore. I'm done. And she goes home just thrilled. She's gotten this off her chest. She's done. She's got her story told. Now she doesn't have to mess with that horrible professor in this awful way, and she can get a failing grade if she wants to, but it's going to be her failing grade. She feels good about it. She goes back, and she applies herself, and she studies hard, she studies hard. And yes, her grades did drop, but she still passed. She was doing okay, right? She was doing all right. Until the end of the semester, she gets called in again by the same academic dean 
and the same discipline review committee. And she's like, why are we meeting on this again? I thought it was behind me. I thought we were done. I thought it was clean. I thought it was clear. I'm forgiven, right? But they hadn't destroyed the record of her transgression. And she was so nervous going to this meeting. I can't believe it. I've worked so hard. I, I thought it was all behind me, blah, blah, blah. And she comes in the room, and she realizes that she's not the only one in the room this time. But lo and behold, there's another girl, and another girl, and another girl. And there were several young women right there, all just as nervous as she was about this meeting. Now think about it, folks, before we get to why that meeting was convened. Think about it logically. If they said, look, we're going to forgive your record. We're going to keep you on academic probation. We're going to be watching you. We're going to make sure that you do it honestly from here on out, but we're going to give you a second chance. Would the problem have been solved? Why not? You haven't dealt with the professor who instigated the whole thing to start with. Right? You can deal with each case one by one by one by one, but until you get to the root of the problem, you haven't solved the problem. And she realized that she was being called back in, not to answer for her original crime again, but yeah, they're going to double check. By the way, have you f are you still saying honest? Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm good. I'll show you my D minus right now. I'm, I'm, but that's mine, you know. And the same thing with every girl in the room. Oh, that, yes, 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 we're, we're doing fine. But the reason they kept a, a transcript a, of the record of all of the wrongs that they had done is because each one of their sins was one more piece of evidence against the main instigator of the sin himself. And their record of wrong is in reality his record of wrong. In fact, hers actually adds with hers and adds with hers and adds with hers and her pile of sin and her pile of sin and her pile makes a whole stack of sins that go back to this one instigator. And in order to eliminate him, they need to collect evidence and show beyond a reasonable doubt that what they said he did, he did. And they can, in one fell swoop, hit all of that record and dump it on him and have him gone for good. Which, by the way, is what happens when Jesus comes again. All the record of those accumulated sins. By the way, remember we studied the millennium? Why is Satan chained and bound down all alone in this wilderness that's vacant? He's the scapegoat who's been taken out to think about all the mess that he's caused. And when Jesus comes again, there's that great white throne judgment. And every sin, every record, everything that ever has been done is put on the shoulders of him who instigated the whole thing. And by the weight of sheer evidence alone, the entire universe looks and says, that's right. Just and true are your ways, O Lord. We have no problem, no question, no more riddles are out there. He should die, and here's the record of why. Please don't get it in your mind that Satan is anyway a substitute for your sins. He's actually an accomplice with your sins. Christ wants to take the sin off of our record and turn us from sinners into saints and put all that mess on him 
and have him destroyed, not as a substitutional sacrifice, but just for the stuff he did so that justice will finally be done. Let me close with Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Page 556, Psalm 73. You know, there was a time in David's life when he actually was envious of the wicked. You ever notice that? that It seems like the most immoral people have the best situation in life, you know? Every awful, horrible criminal somehow half the time gets away with it. Every immoral, unethical, dirty-handed person, all of a sudden, they're the ones flying around the jets, and they have all the success in life. They have all the fame and fortune. Everything seems to go well. But you, plugging away at your daily job, yeah, you've got little faults in here and there, but you're not really having a pile of iniquity like this guy, and yet you never can get ahead. Nothing goes right for you. And David kind of felt that way. Lord, I'm trying to be faithful to you, and what do I get for it? Nothing. (laughs) And he was jealous, he says, of the wicked. Psalm 73. Watch this now. Verse 3. uh, Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Verse 3. For I was, what's that word? Envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of whom? They seem to be getting away with everything. How fair is that? But go down to verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until what? I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. When we look at the sanctuary of God, we see the mechanism by which Christ wants to separate sin from sinner and leave us clean and at the same time put the record of those sins which were instigated by Satan right back on the originator himself and have him take that and be done with it forever. When we consider the sanctuary, we see God's entire plan of salvation. Not just the plan of destruction, but the plan of redemption. The whole process from beginning and end is right there in the sanctuary. And I believe we're living in a time just before Jesus returns that he's doing this most holy place ministry. What does that mean for our lives? I think we should be afflicting our souls. Say, Lord, if there's anything else, I don't want to be tied up with that scapegoat. I want to put everything on the Lord's goat. I want it off of me and onto him. Did tonight's message make sense? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you and thank you and thank you. We absolutely do not deserve your forgiveness. For all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Lord, in your plan, you've laid the iniquity of us all on Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to never cheapen that by taking it for granted or thinking it was just a run-of-the-mill thing. But Lord, it is a most powerful truth in all the universe. And Lord, as we go through this study of your word and we understand the sanctuary procedure more and we see the days in which we're living, Lord, help us to understand the significance of that as well. Help there to be nothing, no small little trinket of a thing, no something we, so big we think we can't surrender it or so small we don't think we have to. Lord, let us afflict our souls. If there's anything between us and our Savior, Lord, help us to give it to him. And stand in your victory. Not just to have your pardon so we can go sin some more. Lord, help us to have victory in Jesus. So that when this sin is ended, we'll be with the redeemed. 
and we can be with our Jesus forever and ever. Lord, this is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.